This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Syne. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that. And I loved that because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians. And the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument, and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. An only child alone and wild, a cabinet 
maker's son His hands were meant for different work And his heart was known to none He left his arm and went his lone And solitary way And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay A quiet man of music Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand Gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand The leader of the band is tired And his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man To the leader of the band My brother's lives were different For they heard another call One went to Chicago And the other to St. Paul And I'm in Colorado When I'm not in some hotel Living out this life I've chose And gone to know so well And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Thank you for the music and your stories of the road I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes we tell your stories. And you can send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And give us your best story. You've got one. We know it. We'll help you record it. Well, a listener in Los Angeles did just that. And her name is Demetrius Moss, and she listens to us on our station there, KABC, a great heritage station, one of the great heritage stations in this country. And while I want to give you fair warning, as you know, we sometimes do some hard stories. This one's tough, but it's an important one. Let's hear from Demetrius. My first memory of my father was with a gun in my face. I was around five years old, and me, my mother, and my three older brothers were all sitting in the living room of our home in Dothan, Alabama, sobbing and begging for our father not to kill us. I was sitting on my mother's lap, and I looked up at her face, and it was beaten and bloody. My father was yelling, I'm going to kill all of you. We beg for what seemed like hours. He pointed a gun at me, and then for some reason, he pointed it up at the ceiling and began firing. So I did not die that day. For the rest of the day, he held my mother on the bed until the sun went down and one of my brothers boiled a pot of water and threw it on his feet so he could get up off of my mother. It worked. I would like to interject this. I have a scar on my left temple, and one day, when I was a bit older, I asked my mom, how did I get this scar on my head? I don't have any memory of it. She told me when I was eight months old, she was holding me on her lap. My dad threw a brick at her, and she leaned over to dodge it, and the brick hit me square in the head. I did not die that day either. After the gun incident, we moved east to Youngstown, Ohio. It was around 1968. I was guessing they wanted to start over and try to make things work between them, but I knew you can't change your physical location. You take everything you are on the inside with you. One night as I was laying in bed, my mom came into my room and she sat down across from me and said, your father told me if I try to leave him, he would kill us all. I was only six years old. Then she just got up, walked out the house, and I peered out the window as she was walking alone down the sidewalk off into the night. The cops knew my parents by name since they were called to the house so many times. One day, as I was coming around the corner from a friend's house, I noticed people with guns had surrounded our house. My mom stepped out on the porch and began firing a gun at them. I ran to the friend's house screaming and shaking. Then they took me back home and I saw my mom being handcuffed and put into a police car. The next day when I came home from school, No one was there to let me in. It was very cold, and I knocked and knocked and knocked. Finally, my older brother arrived and let me in the house. They just vanished, both of them. From that day on, we were on our own. I was seven by then. My oldest brother took care of us the best he could. We ate candy for food, and I did not go to school because I had no one to comb my hair or help me get dressed. 
Then one day, months later, they just appeared out of nowhere. And until this day, I have no idea where they were. I often slept with my parents, and they would be butt naked and working on repairing their relationship while I would lay there and pretend to be asleep. I did not like seeing my father nude. It just did not feel right. My brothers would tie me up sometimes and put me in the basement when my parents would leave. I would stay down there for hours. Once, one of my brothers tried to make me do things with his friend because his friend had a pair. He wanted to eat it, so in exchange for the pair, he offered me. I thank God the boy passed on the offer. I was told to shut up most of the time because I did not have anything to say worth hearing. They were awful. But in spite of that, I always felt loved by my parents, even though they fought each other most of the time. My oldest brother began to fight for my mother. He and my dad would beat up on each other. Once, the dollhouse I loved so much was crushed as my brother picked my father up and threw him on it. The environment was filled with so much fighting, cussing, and loneliness. I spent most of my time playing alone because being the only girl, my brothers did not want me around very much. Many times we went without food because my dad would not come home on payday. He would stop at the bar and get drunk. So late at night, we would wake up to the fighting. It would go on for hours and hours, many times into the next day. My mom packed us up and we moved. She was tired of living that way and wanted to make a new start for herself. Things went well for a little while, but my dad found us and he begged her to take him back. She made the biggest mistake of her life by saying yes. Then the fight started up again, and my dad's drinking grew worse. She kicked him out again, and she said, this is it. I want a divorce. He moved out, and when we would be out away from the house, he would follow us in his car and try to run us off the road. This went on for months. My dad put forth one more effort to get her back. She let him start coming around more and more until one fateful day, he made up his mind that that was it. If I couldn't have her, no one else would. We were going to the mall and then to the laundromat. We did not make it there because as me and my other brother sat in the car waiting for them to come out of the house, we heard arguing. He came outside and my mom slammed and locked the screen door in the house door. My dad snatched the screen door open and my mom opened the door and began hitting him with something in her hand. He pushed her backwards and began firing. Pow, 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 pow. It looked like fire was coming out of the end of the barrel of the gun. He ran out to the car and put the gun in my face. My first and my last memory of my dad was with the gun in my face. And he said, I just shot your mother. Now I'm going in and shoot myself. He ran back to the door and we heard one more shot go off. They both lay there bleeding on the floor. My mom died instantly. He shot her four times in the head, once in the shoulder, and once in the forearm. He shot himself once in the left temple. He died later that night. I was 10 years old. 
We later learned he had called his mother and told her that he was going to kill the whole family. We just happened to be out in the car when he snapped. That was the beginning of my horrors. After the funerals, my aunts and uncles decided we would be shipped off to Omaha, Nebraska. We had a half-sister that we had never met before who was brought up by my mother's sister. We found out about her one month before their deaths. She was much older than we were, and she begged the family if she could be the one to raise us. She wanted to take her brothers and sister home with her. She was married and had two kids of her own who were a little younger than I was. I will never forget when we finally arrived after driving for what seemed like days. They had put our clothes in a big black garbage bag. The only thing we had from our home was a stereo my dad had bought a few months earlier. Other than that, I have nothing that belonged to my parents. No clothing, no furniture, no jewelry, nothing. I have two photos of my parents and that is all I have in their remembrance. When we first arrived in Nebraska, those were the most lonely days of my life. I went from one dysfunctional environment to another. Within one week, my sister decided she had taken on more than she could handle. We were given to our aunt who lived a few projects down. We lived in a one bedroom, all five of us. From day one, they let us know they did not want us nor love us but the money we received from my dad's social security was a nice little bonus for taking in a bunch of orphans. And that is what I felt like since the day they died, an orphan, someone who lives in the world alone and unloved. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this really remarkable and tough story. And again, this is from Demetrius Moss. And my goodness, no one doubts everywhere this story is true. When we come back, and this is straight from Los Angeles, and one of you, one of our listeners, again, Demetrius Moss's story, it continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Demetrius Moss. And she's a listener to one of our affiliates, KABC in Los Angeles. And again, your stories, they matter to us, and they don't have to all be happy ones. There are some tough stories out there, and they're real. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we will put them up, as you can tell, and as evidenced by this story. And so we're back talking to Demetrius. Her father had just killed her mother. Then himself, she's sent off to Nebraska to relatives there who only want the Social Security money. One relative tries to take advantage of her. Another relative actually did and raped her. And she would be raped again on a first date. I mean, it just gets thicker for some people. But she thought she found love 
with a guy named David. By the beginning of 10th grade, I found out that I was pregnant. What a scary feeling to be so young, getting ready to have a child. I decided I was just going to end the pregnancy. But then I decided I wanted my baby. I wanted her to live. So instead, I'll just give her up for adoption. But I decided against that as well. All against David's wishes. He had his whole future ahead of him. He didn't want a baby, but I did. I named her LaMonica. She was beautiful. I was put out of my aunt's house soon after the birth and moved in with my brother Jeff. His family lived in the projects. That was not the kind of life I wanted for my daughter. I moved in with David's brother's family for about three months and then got my own place all on my own. I forgot to mention when I was 15, I was watching a Billy Graham program and gave my life to Jesus Christ. So God was with me. He was guiding me. After I got my place, I got a real job at Mutual of Omaha corporate offices. I was 18, and that was the beginning of my life in the corporate world. I started growing in my walk with Christ. David decided to give his life to God, and we soon got married. I had already become pregnant with our second child, a boy. David was soon working in the ministry. He had a gift to preach the Word of God. He also had a problem with the ladies. We began to fight more than ever. We never got along, but we kept having children. His gift became larger than he could handle. A great gift, but no character. He was sleeping with several ladies in the church. When it was all said and done, he was sleeping with so many women, he even lost count. One night, when I was putting up laundry, the Holy Spirit spoke the names of two women in my heart. When I said their names to him, he started weeping and asked me, Who told you? How did you know? From that point on, I decided I wanted a divorce. We had four children by now, and I was very unhappy. I was in a deep depression. David was smoking weed, drinking, as well as sleeping around, yet he was still preaching the gospel. When he moved out, he was shocked, and he thought I could not live without him. But God's presence was growing in my heart. I began to seek God like never before by fasting and prayer and studying his word. I began to attend church and began to be told that God had a plan for my life. I was hoping David and I would get back together, but he went farther away from God, and within one year, our divorce was final. He was remarried to a lady he met in the barber shop. As time went on, I remained single until a friend of mine introduced me to a friend. His name was Carl. I didn't love him, but he begged me to marry him. I mean begged. We got married, and after one weekend, I walked out. He was heartbroken, but I didn't love him. It was horrible. One of the reasons I left as well was he heard voices. This guy was strange. But since friends hooked me up with him, I thought he was okay. 
For months after that breakup, he began to follow me and send me gifts through the mail and through taxi cabs. Clothes, money, flowers. I was starting to get worried, so I moved into another city. In between that time, I started questioning God about my life. I heard all these negative things happening to me. But still, when I would go to church, I was told, God has a plan for your life. But what? How? How could he use me now after all the mistakes I've made? As my kids got older, they moved in with their dad, and he in turn moved to another city. I had to be a long-distance mother. I was very angry with him for that. Plus, another woman was raising my kids. In 1998, I was attending a funeral and met up with a friend from school who just said hi. He ended up getting my phone number and we started dating. He said I was the one and he wanted to get married. I was against it at first and thought, well, I could learn to love him. I made the same mistake again and left him after four months. Now my life seemed to be going backwards. Why was I making these mistakes after God said he was with me? I didn't understand this path I was on. Years went by and I found myself in Nebraska alone and decided to move to California and become part of something called the Dream Center, a church with Pastor Tony Barnett. I thought I would serve God and live single for the rest of my life. But when I got to the ministry, they took all of my clothes made me and the other women clean the bathrooms with toothbrushes. We were like in prison. So much had happened, it was another nightmare. Just another broken dream. I left after three weeks with a box of belongings and was standing on a street corner here in this big city alone and afraid. How could this be happening? I cried and I prayed. With only some change in my purse, I happened to have my brother's phone number who lived in San Diego. Called him up and his wife Linda answered the phone. I told her my situation and they said I could come and stay with them until I got on my feet. I got a job the first week and began to work. It was going good at first, but my brother and I had not seen each other in 15 years. So my presence kind of brought up old wounds. One day he came home from work and for no reason started yelling at me and telling me to get out. I was frozen. Later on that evening, he said he was sorry and don't know why he did that. He started acting very strange, him and his wife. It was those old familiar feelings of many past years, those old childhood feelings. I had stayed overnight with his wife's cousin before I went to San Diego. And I called back and asked could I stay with them in Los Angeles till I could get on my feet. They said yes. I got a job and I've been here ever since. It's 18 years now. God has always blessed me with really good jobs. I've been working in law firms for over 10 years. I've been in corporate America for 25 years. All of my kids are grown now. One just moved to California. Over the years, God has done a deep work in my heart. He has healed me of depression and so many doors He has opened in my life. This is a short version of my life story. There are many things I left out. 
and things I don't even want to put on paper. Well, that's it. That's my story. And that's Demetrius Moss's story, and she's in Los Angeles. And again, if you have stories to tell, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And they don't have to be fairies and roses and and daisies and rainbows, folks. That's not how life works for, for many of us. Demetrius Moss's story, here on Our American Story. American stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty 
than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa, 
and I slept on the floor next to him, at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer, I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work, I pay the bills, I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day, I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver.
it was his last best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story builds here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we tell your stories from every part of this country. Large states, small states, big cities, rural America, and red and blue states, too. And this next story, well, it's the story of Molly Kate Klein, and she's a young fashion designer whose life has far from been easy, but who's come through to be featured in fashion weeks across the country, and all at the ripe old age of 20. I applied to Phoenix Fashion Week, and what's really cool about Phoenix Fashion Week is that it's more than just a week-long event. It's actually a five-month boot camp for fashion designers. So they have basically been teaching us and kind of building us as entrepreneurs as well as fashion designers throughout the whole past five months. And then it kind of all ended in the week-long Fashion Week event. But a big part of the boot camp program was meeting with investors and pitching ourselves to stores, going through production and really the whole business side of everything, which was kind of intimidating for me since I'm still in college. The first while was all spent on who we are, what we want to make, what we want to sell, like our brand message, our tagline, and they were really upfront and honest with us about if it was a good idea, a good brand, like our values, and it was really scary because When I design clothes, it's something I'm so passionate about, and I felt like it was being judged right away as soon as I got there. And looking back, I know that it was to help me grow, and they've definitely done that. But it's just difficult when your passion is kind of turning into a business a little bit. You kind of have to look at things differently. So that was the first thing that was kind of difficult for me. And another thing that I thought was just kind of funny and interesting was when I got there everyone was way older than me and so that was kind of like the running joke all summer which felt like it was a bad thing because everyone kind of made fun of me for it but when I met with all the investors it was the fact that I am 20 years old that made them really like me and made the investors really interested in me and my brand and I guess you could say my potential. So it was just kind of funny that the thing that I felt like was holding me back the whole time is what ended up setting me apart. It's funny because I feel like 
it hasn't only been in Phoenix Fashion Week, but I feel like almost my whole life I've been either the youngest doing something or just sort of the underdog. But it's cool because it almost doesn't phase me anymore. It's hard because I feel like, and I know that other people have more experience than me, but I just know that experience comes with time and you can't complain about where you haven't been yet. You just have to work on getting there. When I think about it and where I am now in college, I'm not the underdog anymore. I'm gonna go into the industry having this really cool experience that not everyone gets to do. So I'm feeling really grateful. Molly Kate's brand has been 20 years in the making. Molly Kate Klein hasn't always been Molly Kate Klein. I was actually born Molly Ross, that's my birth name, up until I was in fifth grade. Leading up to fifth grade, I was very, very close to my dad. My dad was my favorite person. And um, I'd kind of joke around with my mom and say that my dad was like the fun, cool parent. <laughs> we would always um, just always be having a fun time goofing around. And I never saw him struggle at all. And I was a really happy kid. And it's like that all kind of changed all at once when my mom told me that my dad passed away and it wasn't until later on when I was about 16 that um, my mom had told me that he passed away due to suicide which was big news but at the same time I knew I knew that it happened just because I just kind of had that feeling but when I was nine and nine years old in fifth grade you don't automatically think about those things. You just think about how happy he was and how happy you were, you know, spending time with your dad. And so going back to school was really difficult because this happened just weeks before fifth grade started. So I went into school completely a mess and very confused. And I really struggled with whether or not I should tell people about my dad or whether that was something to keep to myself and so I kind of told some people didn't tell some people and I don't know if it's just something about being you know nine ten years old but when people found out about it some people thought it was funny some people wanted to make fun of it some people just wanted to ask a lot of questions and it really just became like a topic for everyone to talk about and make fun of me for. And I remember changing my appearance drastically because my name did change. So my last name was Ross and it changed to Klein after um, I was adopted. But then I asked if I could change my first name from Molly to Molly Kate because my dad chose the name Kate and he always called me Molly Kate. So that's kind of how I wanted to keep his, his memory in my name. And everyone made fun of me for it. No one understood it. They just kind of thought, who's this girl? Why is her name different? And it was just a topic of conversation.
And what a thing to discover as someone young and what a thing to do as a young person to, to sort of honor the father's memory uh, despite heckling from students and the like. And what a thing to endure, suicide. I know it. I've had one in my own family and it's, there's nothing quite like it. Anyone who's experienced it knows what I'm talking about. What Molly Kate Klein does despite this and how she moves forward in her life. Molly Kate Klein's story continues here on Our American Stories. story of Molly Kate Klein here on Our American Stories. The bullying she faced and the passion that was born from all of it is what we're about to get into now. And my goodness, it's quite a story. My only way of really coping with the bullying and everything that I was feeling was through sewing. It was just what I wanted to learn how to do. And I was nine years old, and when my name changed to Molly Kate Klein, I thought it sounded like a fashion designer, (laughs) and I was just kind of determined. I said, Mom, like, I want to get a sewing machine, I want to go to fashion school, like, I want to start making my own clothes, and that's what I did. I taught myself how to sew when I was about 10 started wearing my creations to school, totally got made fun of. It made the bullying a million times worse. But I always felt something inside of me telling me that it was going to be okay and that I was meant to be doing what I was doing. And I thought that since I had this, you know, cool fashion designer name, I should change my appearance. So I like chopped off my hair, I dyed it like bleach blonde. I had glasses, I started like changing the way I dressed. It was really just a way for me to kind of distract myself. And that's what made the bullying even worse. It definitely didn't help um, that I had like extremely crooked buck teeth and acne and glasses. I was just like the epitome of who fifth graders would make fun of. And it was a really long year of eating lunch in the bathroom, not going to recess, hiding at recess, basically as stereotypical as they make it seem in the movies. That's definitely how it was for me. I remember being afraid to walk home from like the bus stop because kids would follow me home and throw things at me and I'd get things thrown at me on the bus, threatened to get beat up, but I just sat there just sketching clothes and I had a few friends who were really supportive of it and I would pretend to sketch them outfits to wear and I'm really thankful for them because if I didn't have those few couple friends I probably probably would have um, been a lot sadder and I don't know what I would have done but thankfully by the time sixth grade came around things got a little bit better 
and then middle school things started to look better because I could have more friends and meet new people. But for a while there, it felt like a midlife crisis at nine years old. I completely just changed who I was, but in a sense, I kind of just feel like I became who I believe God wanted me to be. So I look at it as a negative time, but also a really positive transformational time at the same time. This went on all throughout middle school, high school, into college, just feeling almost attacked by maybe peers, people around me, just for being a little different, being quiet, being introverted, and people not really understanding passion and creativity and just kind of like what I do. And never really felt like I fit in anywhere. But I've always had this little drive, this voice inside me saying to just stick with it because it's for a purpose, it's for something. Around the time I was 16 was when one of my very best friends, Allie, passed away. And it was extremely shocking to everybody. I remember it was just a couple days after my 16th birthday. And I kind of wondered, you know, like why she wasn't at my birthday party and what was going on. But we had found out that Allie had taken her own life. And it was extremely hard because Allie was really close to me and my mom and my sisters. And I kind of grew up with her. And I guess you could say the topic of suicide became really prevalent to me almost. It was on my mind a lot, not in the sense of necessarily me wanting to act on that, but just the idea of it and how it has played out through my life. And after hearing that about Allie, I just had this feeling in me like that was how I lost my dad as well even though that was never told to me yet. So I had asked my mom and we kind of had this talk and she verified that for me. And it was within probably two weeks after that, that I had joined with some other students at my school and some other parents to create an anti-suicide kind of group. And um, this was a nonprofit organization where we created a website for students who needed help to just go online and have mental health resources. And that was very, very recent after losing Allie and kind of hearing about my dad. And it was definitely the way that I dealt and kind of coped with their losses. So we did a lot of work with this organization and ended up raising a lot of money for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, participating in their annual walks every year. And my journalism teacher and I actually went down to the Ohio Senate and we talked with them about expanding a house bill for mandating mental health education, K through 12 in Ohio. So that's something that is still in the works because um, 
I don't know, changing house bills definitely takes years, but I really just became fascinated at this point in my life to stop anything that was really telling teens and just people in general that they weren't enough, and I just became fascinated with suicide prevention, and it was definitely a coping mechanism for me, but that's when I became a mental health advocate, and it was about a year or two later, once I was in college, when I was approached by Teen Vogue to write some mental health articles for them. They have an online course that you can take that is connected to Parsons School of Design, like the top design school in New York, to learn about the fashion industry. So I took it in high school at the very end of my senior year because I was like super excited for college to start for fashion school. So I did the program and then a year later, once I was already in college, um, Teen Vogue sent out an email to everyone who did the fashion program and you just get like a little certificate at the end. And they said that they were interested in kind of hearing our feedback of like what we thought about the program. So I emailed them back and they went to my page and started looking at like everything I do. It's mental health, but it's fashion and photography. And they had their wellness editor reach out to me and they were like, hey, you're a mental health advocate. Can you do mental health writing for us? And that's when I flew out there and I met with the like mental health team and they've never once, like, we've never talked about fashion. It's just always been mental health. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it's cool. So, it's definitely been something that will always be important to me. And I'm always trying to find new ways to, I don't know, always support that and include it in everything I do. I know now that I'm starting my fashion company, um, I'm giving back 10% of everything I make to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. So, and that's just in honor of my dad and kind of how my story started. And my goodness, not just one suicide, but surviving two. And what she does and how she channels her energy at this young an age, getting involved in prevention, turning two really deeply negative stories into something positive. And when we come back, you're not going to believe what Molly Kate Klein does next with her life. But my goodness, she's grown up fast. And, well, you're going to hear the rest of the story when we come back. Molly Kate Klein's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and send your stories to us. A suicide story, a happy story. Any story at all, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, we continue with Molly Kate Klein's story after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of Molly Kate Klein's story and the secret to this young lady's fulfillment. Around the time I was 16 in high school, I started to go to a Bible study, and I kind of fell out of place because I didn't grow up in the church at all. But when I went there, I... I kind of started to like it, and every time I felt like I was close to really understanding and enjoying Bible study and just the idea of becoming Christian, I kind of took a step back and I struggled because I kept asking myself this question and I kept asking, you know, if God was real, why would he take my father away? And I asked myself that for a long time until I finally just asked the leader of the church group and they kind of had a talk with me and they said, don't you think that his death has had to happen for some reason? And I I don't know if that's exactly how they said it word for word, but the point of what they were saying was that no matter how or why that happened, it's most likely that it's because God wanted something to come out of it. And as soon as they said that, I felt comforted because they didn't know that I was kind of into fashion design and I felt like that was a calling in a sense. And I just felt like that was the answer to what they were saying, that maybe, Maybe this loss was to ignite some sort of drive inside of me to make a difference, whether that is in sustainability and fashion design or in mental health awareness. I felt like I had this like purpose inside of me in a sense, but I didn't know who or why exactly who put it there, why it was there, and going to Bible study and learning about Jesus and becoming a Christian definitely kind of put all the puzzle pieces together for me that, I don't know, that there is purpose in life and a reason for everything. And so it's definitely been my faith that has solidified for me um, kind of this crazy journey that I've been on in the direction that I'm going in. And I feel like that is the driving force in everything that I'm doing right now. So I feel really, really happy about that. Last year, it's crazy to me to think that that was already a year ago because it feels like it just happened. But about a year ago, I really decided that I wanted to make a fashion line that could tell a story and was a little more meaningful than a lot of clothing that I was making. And I was working with my youth leader as I was reading the Bible. I really could picture it as a visual story and a visual story that I wanted to maybe show on the runway. So throughout the course of Oh gosh, at least half a year, I met with my youth leader and 
we went through the Bible taking notes and took those notes to implement into a six-piece couture fashion line. So this fashion line I called Histoire de Dieu, which is French for the story of God. And it basically told the story of the Bible through a four-piece narrative that went through creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And this was by far my most favorite project I've ever worked on. Started out, the very first piece was a look from the Garden of Eden. And it just went on through there to kind of just to show this the arc and the narrative of the Bible through these kind of elaborate couture designs. So it was extremely fun. And what made it so much better was at the end of me kind of creating this collection, it actually got accepted into New York Fashion Week. So that was literally a dream come true because that's something that little nine-year-old me was dreaming of and I thought maybe would happen by the time I was maybe 40 or 50, but um, that was incredible. When I got to New York Fashion Week, I had all my models lined up and they were models that were, you know, randomly selected for me. And something had happened before the show where in the chaos of backstage, because backstage of New York Fashion Week is insane, people running around like crazy, and I'm still not even exactly sure what happened, but my models had to end up walking the runway for another designer before me, and it left me without any models like 15 minutes before my show, and I'm freaking out, and they tell me that they have some backup models, and I was upset because I was like, why are you calling them backup models? Like, that's so offensive, and it made me feel really sad for them, and I was like, well, go get them. Like, they're not backup models. They're my models. Like, I want to meet them, and when they brought in the girls, it was really funny because they were all, like, my age, and I became immediate friends with them right away, and when I saw them, I kind of realized that they were who I was picturing wearing this fashion line the whole time that I had been working on it for, you know, like half a year. And I was like, okay, like this is going to work out. This is going to be good. And I started um, kind of putting the clothes on everybody. And I was explaining to each model how I wanted them to walk because I wanted each girl to walk a little differently based on what part of the Bible they were kind of representing, whether I wanted to walk, have them walk um, kind of like happy and free and flowing or maybe a little more like angry or mad. And so I explained to them the narrative of the clothing line and everyone started crying. And I was like, you can't cry right now. Like you're like, you're gonna mess up your makeup. You're gonna have to walk on the runway. And they were just crying and they looked at me and every single one of them were like oh my gosh like I'm a Christian too and I was it was so cool I was like nah like that's crazy and it was just so cool that um because before I had left to go to the show as I was like on my way there 
I was praying and I just asked God to surround me with the people that he wanted to be a part of this. And it was just really cool because he definitely ended up doing that. And um, those girls are still some of, some of my closest friends to this day. I still talk to all of them. So I thought it was really cool that God kind of brought us all together and that they could be a part of it. And great job, Robbie, on that piece. That's Robbie Davis bringing us Molly Kate Klein's story. And it's a story of adversity and trials. And it's also a God story. And we bring them to you now and then. We don't shy away from them. God plays a role in so many of our lives, and and many don't. And we tell those stories, too, and respect so many of the lives in this country, the faith-based lives and the non-faith-based lives, because, well, it's a big country. And in terms of suicide prevention, we've done any number of stories about suicide. We don't shy away from these stories. We've done miscarriage stories, too. And we've done eulogies. That's a part of life. We don't shy away from it. And, well, it's coming to everybody. Molly Kate Klein's story, folks, a good one here on Our American Stories. If you enjoyed the story you just heard, give us a follow on Facebook or head on over to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the newsletter so we can send you our best stories each week. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Menz defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate, 
and that are identified with them. But I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever. And people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same. And it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here, rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together, is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant, and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people, who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked. And then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you had the Spanish who came later, but now you've got the settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, Moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food. Plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So. The Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans, and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you have Germans. They were bringing a sausage-making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds, and uh, they were being taken out of prison. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtor's prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage-making traditions. 
New Orleans is an old city, and by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana Territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans. And of course, they're bringing pasta. The interesting thing is, of course, tomatoes were from uh, the Americas. The tomato went back with Columbus, was adopted by Southern Italy, totally transformed the cuisine of Southern Italy, and then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes so we weren't canning tomatoes wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, things like that, which is a southern thing is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs, and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans and now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city. And so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home, and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. 
even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best pogo is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter, everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. That is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. And you listen to people talk about food on the bus, and you listen to people talk about food everywhere, and people want to know, you know, do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo, or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside? All the little nuances of it. It's like everybody wants to know, and nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know. Everybody knows. And great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my brides, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Nolans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 